0: Welcome to the Longthread podcast about spinning, stitching and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Longthread Media, publishers of Spin Off, Handwoven, Piecework and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Chenway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at TrinwaySilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Ann Mero. Mary Zikafoos is an ECOT artist and weaving teacher located in Cedar Bluffs, Nebraska. Well, Mary Zikafoos, thank you for joining me. Now, you are the author of a book on ECOT, and I know that you teach about ECOT a lot. Can you tell me what exactly is ECOT?
1: Yes, I can tell you exactly what is ECOT. And it's not to be confused with Shibori. I think we all know Shibori, which is when we take woven cloth and fold and wrap and clamp it and dye it and create wonderful resist patterns. And ikat is actually taking individual threads and doing the same thing. It's an old classic cultural resist dye technique um, that was kind of relegated and saved for the, the, the garments of the highest prestige because it's really time consuming. It's very labor intensive. But the results are incredibly smashing and beautiful, and so you know when you put all that together, you have a pretty irresistible package for making fabulous cloth.
0: Well, and the word "ecot" is from a particular place, but the technique is very it's it's very widespread, you know. Yeah. And, I, and
1: I I often wonder, like, it's so. How do ideas get de- disseminated around the world? I mean, is yeah. there's like, is there's an idea hovering over the planet, and, and then it just kind of sprinkles down universally <laughs> across the planet in given locations at certain times? And somebody goes, "Hey, I think I'm going to wrap some fiber <laughs> and dye it, <laughs> and unwrap it and weave it." You know, somebody says that in Egypt. Somebody says that in Indonesia. Somebody mm-hmm. says that in Russia. And all of a sudden, you know, the world is doing eCot. I mean, I, I don't think it's that simple, but I kind of think it is that simple. And of mm-hmm. course, we have the the Silk Road and trade mm-hmm. routes that um, carry these parcels of exotic fabric from camel to port, from port to ship, from ship to exotic location. And you know that was how that's how things spread. It wasn't Instagram. <laughs> but it was <laughs> but it was Instagram by Camel.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there are so many interesting regionally specific looks to it as well. I mean, you, what you see in, say, Uzbekistan yeah. and what you see in India are so different and they're the same, you know, idea of resistance. It's, it's and the weave, same
1: you know, and the same with all of our weaving techniques. I mean we all mm-hmm. have the same you know, we all speak the same language, we have the same tools. You can only do so many things with threads going on, on top and under each other, you know. Mm-hmm. But the 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 vernacular of it is so incredibly different based on um, the sensibilities of a culture. And I, I, I just gave a talk the other night to a, a weavers guild, a Zoom talk, and we were talking about um, ikats from um, Uzbekistan and, and the Stan countries. And those are countries that it were such incredible decorators. You know, every building is like, oh, you know, decorated to the hilt. These are countries where people did incredible tile work and incredible brick work. And we looked at all of these images of just embellishment upon embellishment upon embellishment. So, of course, when you see these ecot robes, they, they resemble the buildings. You know, that I mean, that's that was the look that was that was the language these people spoke and you go to Asia and and they're blue and white, you know, they're, they're really simple and they're blue and white, meticulously done, you know, Mm -hmm. meticulously done. So it's whatever, whatever everybody agrees to is, is the (laughs) in thing. That's what, that's what arose from different parts of the world. And I love, I love the differences and it's all, it all boils down to the same amount of work
0: (laughs) no (laughs) matter where you live. That's true. I actually have a piece of silk velvet ikat, which I feel particularly attached ah. to from Uzbekistan. True confession, I don't really understand how velvet is made. And it's okay, we don't have to go into that here. But it seems like just an extra layer of complexity. Oh, it
1: is. It is. It's like, oh, let's even make it harder. Let's make it velvet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's, the human. Yeah. That's what we do. You know, it's like we we can't hold ourselves back.
0: That's true. Now I, I mostly know of you as uh, you know somebody who writes books that we consider to be weaving books and teaches at conferences that we consider to be weaving conferences. But do you think of yourself as a weaver or a dyer, or are they really kind of connected and impossible to parse apart?
1: You know, I will tell you, I'm gonna st- I'm gonna wind it back one step farther. I, th- oh, I please! I cons- yeah, I consider myself an artist. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that and that's like the big umbrella, mm-hmm. and then the sub umbrella under that is I call myself an ecot tapestry weaver. Oh, and you know, because primarily the ecot work I do is in tapestry. It's not. I. It's not wearables. I'm not making Uzbek robes. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. But
1: in order to teach ecot, I realized that there there very few. The, the tapestry weaving community is small, and right. the ecot tapestry weavers there may be two of us on the planet you know right. so to write write a book on ecot tapestry was like i don't know if that's a, if that's the way to go but so I, I introduced ecot through the hand of of the functional wearable mm-hmm. world so that would be scarves and stoles and you know and table mm-hmm. tableware uh, and that is, that's the way to learn ECOT. First of all, Warp ECOT is far less complex, far easier mm. to learn than Weft ECOT. And mm. all of those items are Warp ECOT. The, the ECOT we all know and love is Warp ECOT. And so let's teach Warp ECOT. So that was why I wrote a book on Warp ECOT, even though I rarely do it.
0: Well, that's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I had first had someone explain Guatemalan Hospe to me, now, and that's something that's the, the, the patterning is often done in two directions. And she found it easier to explain to me how to do the weft-wise one, even though the warp-wise one was easier to do. But it was easier to explain how the pattern would be established. How to do the weft. Yeah.
1: You know, and I think with weft, of course, with weft, depending on what your use is going to be, if you're doing it with a tapestry or a rug, those mm-hmm. salvages have to look like God wove them. And you can't right. have a bunch of extra hanging off the edges. But if it's going to be a wearable garment, you can just cut that, you know, and that can be a seam allowance there. Right. So it's a whole different application with finer threads and with wearables. Mm-hmm. And there yeah. is smashing, no matter no matter what the application is. You know, I'm I really am a devotee of E. Cut. There's something about it. the the look The look of that bleedy edge. I think people have been have fallen in love with that you know, for centuries.
0: Yeah. And isn't that amazing that there's, there's something where it, it has to be the bleeding edge. If it's too perfect, <laughs> it's it looks not, printed. Yeah. And if it's yeah. not perfect enough, you lose the pattern of it. So it's, it's really kind of amazing that. I wonder if it's the handmade element of it.
1: I think it's the handmade element. I think it's the painterly aspect. I mm-hmm. always say that how does a weaver make their work more painterly? They do e-cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it has to be a dye process. There's mm-hmm. nothing on that loom, that gridlock loom, that says, I am painterly. But when you take yarns that have, been, have had a painterly hand applied to them, mm-hmm. and then you put them in and you get this bleedy thing going, it's, you know, all of a sudden you're off the grid. And yeah. that's quite a, that's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah. Uh, visually very exciting. Is this something that you enjoy experiencing as a traveler, as somebody who appreciates weaving, as well as someone who, oh, of course, you know, makes these tapestries? Yeah, what's, what's been your favorite one to explore?
1: Oh, you know, I, I mean, I, lo- all the countries that do ecot, I, I, I have such a, f- a fondness, and it's such an excitement, like to go into a, go to go anywhere and, and discover ecot yardage or anything done in ECAT. I can cite a particular example. I was on a textile trip in China mm-hmm. a few years ago for the International ECAT um, uh, and Shibori Conference in Hangzhou, China. And we were doing a bus tour afterwards for a couple of weeks. And we had just gone through the Taklamakan Desert on a bus for days upon end. And all of a sudden we stop at a bus stop and there is A a shop, it's an ikat shop in the middle of the desert in China. I've never seen an ikat shop in my life. And, you know, (laughs) of course, this is a bus full of textile people. We tear into this shop and it's not naturally dyed ikats, but everything has been hand dyed, hand woven. There's enough ikat to dress the world in this little Mm -hmm. shop. And we went crazy. So that was an unexpected, mm. <laughs> an unexpected perk in going to China was to run into an ecot shop. Where are my favorite Ecots made? I mean, I, I really have a, you know, a, such a love for the Central Asian Ecots. Who doesn't? Mm. You know, they're right. so graphically beautiful and, and right now there's this fantastic ecot exhibit that just opened at the Seattle Art Museum. Right. That I'm and I haven't seen it yet. I right. I'll be there I'll be there in a bit to see it. But I'm sure it's full of Central Asian Ecats. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's amazing. I also saw that I believe that Roland and Shinami Ricketts are both doing a piece, and he's really known for a lot of Shibori work. But there's a, a big installation of yeah resist.
1: Anything either of them put their hand to mm-hmm. is off the charts. So right. this this will be a, this is going to be a fantastic exhibition. Yeah.
0: Yes. I'm very excited to see it. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to just see it digitally, or if I'll get to walk through the galleries myself. But one of the challenging things about textile exhibits this way is that I just want to touch all the things. I want to have them all running through my hand.
1: Yeah, I think we all do. Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we should be a little swatch. You should get to. Pet. And that was one of the things <laughs> Actually, that conversions were. Actually, not a bad a idea. Little...
1: That's not a bad idea. You know, and I'll, I'm going to bear that in mind. The next, I have a show coming up in actually in two years, mm-hmm. and I am going to do, I'm going to have little swatches <laughs> on your pieces that you could actually touch, particularly the difference between a silk piece mm-hmm. and a wool piece, uh-huh. you know, because yeah. so many people have no clue. Yeah,
0: it's true. So what do you find most surprising or most maybe most challenging about teaching people to work with ecot because I know that you are an instructor as well as an artist.
1: Right. You know, that's a really good question. I tell people be prepared for a level of fussing. That <laughs> yeah, you you're you're you, that you're on a company, you know, you're just yeah. not you haven't done that at a loom. And mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh yeah, I got that, no problem. And then we begin and right. I look over and I see people in a having a fit because yeah. things look so unruly. You know, we're used to these lovely threads right off a spool. Mm-hmm. Everything's smooth and organized. You warp your loom and away you go. That's not ECOT. In ECOT, you're pulling and shifting threads purposefully to create designs but anytime you pull you know quite a few threads maybe hundreds maybe even thousands out of sequence they create lumps and bumps and tangles and knots right and it's not your preferred look at the loop (laughs) you know and everyone goes what am I doing wrong oh my god what have I done? And I go, no, no, no. You are totally right on. I said, Mm -hmm. now, you know, now it's, it separates the men from the boys here. (laughs) Now we have to go in, you know, and manage all this. Mm -hmm. So much of learning to do ECOT is, I call is yarn management. Right. You know, whatever you, whatever you learned in your beginning weaving class, it, it sort of doesn't apply anymore.
0: Hmm.
1: It's like it looks like every mistake you ever made times 10, <laughs> all, all right there at your leash sticks, right in front of you. And we always, always get it organized, mm-hmm. but it takes just a level of patience. And some people don't have it, you know, quite frankly, you're either wired that way mm-hmm. or you're not. And I think, you know, I could unravel yarn. All day long. I mean, it does. I don't take it personally. And this is another thing. So many people take it personally that their loom looks like a shipwreck mess when, <laughs> when they're putting the ECOD on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is how this process looks. And then at the end, you know, the, the result is so smashing and beautiful. And it was only achieved because we had to um, take these yarns out of sequence. And do do odd things with them. Put them in bundles and do things with bundles that you never dreamed you would do at your loom. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, I like that. And, and I'm getting, I think, when my fr- book first came out, it was during COVID. So, mm-hmm. of course, I wasn't doing online. I mean, personal teaching. It was all online. And this last year, we we've started to meet in person. So I really got to see people's angst up close. Yeah. You know, yeah. on Zoom, I I didn't really, you know, they would tell me about it, but <laughs> right. I, don't, I was like, yeah, that's fine, you got over it. But when you see it up close, you know, it when, yeah. with a room full of people, I've got, I've learned how to. Um, walk people through it, I think, um, with greater skill.
0: So you're so known for ecot now. How did you happen to get into this particular field? What, What led you to a passion for this particular kind of weaving?
1: That's a very good question. And I think the seeds were planted very early in my life. My first exposure to ecot, I was probably three or four years old. And my aunt and uncle had just come back from a trip to Indonesia. My uncle was in the CIA, and oh, he was always God. going on mystical junkets, you know, <laughs> here and there. And they would bring back all of these exotic treasures. Mm-hmm. And I think I was probably the only person in 1950 that had kuba cloth in their bedroom, wow. you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, it really stoked my early interest in ethnic objects, I would say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, my aunt brought back a little scrap of ecot fabric and uh-huh. gave it to me. And I wasn't that wowed by the fabric when she handed it to me. I was like, oh my gosh, what, you know, it looked like a handkerchief. But I was wowed by what she then did is she grabbed me by the shoulders and she shook me. And she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, Mary, this fabric contains magic. And that was it. I mean, I had, there was not a doubt in my mind when she said Mm -hmm. that, that it contained magic. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, who has magic cloth? I don't know anyone who does, but I do. And, and I, it took me, you know, it took me someplace that I, I never didn't even know existed, really. And that cloth went with me everywhere, mm-hmm. under my pillow at night, in my pocket, until I finally lost it. But, I, you know, it was a very, very special object. For me. And then years later, when I was in high school, I worked at a bookstore in an old Victorian home. And the owner of the bookstore happened to be, quote unquote, the president of the Fernwood Weavers Guild in Niles, Michigan. And she had this group of women that were so unlike any women I knew. They were not like my mother and my aunts. These were women who were turned on Excited, learning new things, wearing clothes that my mom and my aunts didn't wear. <laughs> you know, yeah. doing things my mom and my aunts didn't do. I mean they <laughs> I, I was intoxicated by these women. And one summer, they all got in their station wagons and drove to the Michigan League of Handweavers Conference somewhere in Michigan. And Jacqueline or Larson was the keynote speaker. and he spoke about eCOt. And so they came home and, and in their tote bags, they started yanking out all of this fabric. And I was like, Oh my God, you guys have magic fabric. <laughs> That's so wonderful. <laughs> and they're like, Well, I guess we do, you know? And I was like, Oh, and then they told me what it was. I had no, you know, I had no idea what it was. I was like, Okay, 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 great. File that away. And this is my last little early life story. I was in college. I went to St. Mary's College at Notre Dame, Indiana, which at that time was a sister school to the University of Notre Dame. I was an art major. I was in a portfolio review with the head of the art department. And we were, I'd spread out all my paintings and my prints and my design work. And Sister Rosellen looked at everything and she said, Mary, all I'm seeing is textiles. Mm -hmm. These pieces want to be textiles. And I don't think I had ever even said the word textile at that point in my life, let alone entertain the thought that my work was resembling that my paintings were frustrated textiles. <laughs> I was floored and I was, I would say, frankly, a bit insulted. You know, I, I mean, that wasn't what I wanted to hear out of the portfolio review. And in fact, she said, Mary, I want you to look, look this up after you leave the review today. On a piece of paper, she, she wrote down four letters and you know what they were. They were IKAT. Mm-hmm. And she said, look up this technique. And she said, it's not because your work looks like this. But I think as a painter, this is a direction you might want to go. And as I walked out of the room, I remember crumpling up the piece of paper and throwing it in the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terribly passive aggressive. But I was like, no. No. I don't know what she's talking. She doesn't know what she's talking about. That can't possibly be me, a textile person. What are textiles anyway? And that was that. The seeds had been planted. And, um, you know, my undergrad degree was in photography. My graduate degree was in clay. And I happened to take a weaving class. And the moment I sat behind a loom, that was it. It's like somebody switched a flip. I threw that shuttle in this, and I was making a, a, a little thing that was a, akin to a dishrag. It was nothing nothing of any you know any great artistic <laughs> merit. But as soon as I threw that shuttle, I saw in front of me what the possibilities. I saw the kinds of pieces that I'm making today. And I knew that the road between that, that dishrag and 20-foot tapestries was going to be a long, circuitous journey. But I, I, was, I was up for it. I was yeah. willing to do it. And short, I started weaving carpets. Once, once I learned enough to be dangerous, I started weaving carpets and selling them and pretty quickly felt the gridlock of it. You know, felt felt restrained by my lack of great textile prowess and techniques, and I didn't think that my lifetime would be long enough to be a, a fabulous tapestry weaver. Mm-hmm. So I thought I've I've got to have got to find solace in the dye pot, and somehow I ended up with a pamphlet on ecot. And I, that was probably all that was written at the time. And I just ventured off on my own in the, in the little pamphlet. It, it said, take a board and put a nail at one end and a nail at the other. Stretch some yarn in between, cut up a garbage bag and tie little resist areas and throw it in a dye pot. Hmm. And that was the sum total of my formal ECOT education right there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never studied at the foot of a master. Right. I've gone to many countries and, you know, and, and certainly seen the work of masters and talked to them, but I've never been, I've never embarked on that kind of mentorship.
0: I feel like ECOT was chasing you. It wouldn't let you go. It wouldn't
1: <laughs> let me go. It wouldn't let me go. And you know, the, the wonderful thing is that was a pretty quick study. I mean, I was so turned on when I, by the idea of getting off the grid and seeing the results that I just kept taking baby step after baby step. So I think the first little Little, I made a little stripe for a carpet that had probably six ecot wraps on it. And to date, the most complicated ecot I've done, I think, is one hundred eighty-six thousand ecot wraps on a piece. So oh, we've come up, you know, a long way right. over the decades. And it was just step by step. The second piece had twelve wraps. Mm-hmm. Then you know, the next one maybe had thirty. You know, it's bit by bit by bit. I kept pushing the envelope to go. What if what if I tried this? What if I tried that? Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I'll try it again. Oh, let's do this.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about going off the grid because at the same time there is a certain amount of being able to predict what you're doing that strikes me as being almost like playing chess. Oh. You know, that you need to be able to to say, if I do this, then this is what will happen. And Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, I think I think this thing with the ECOT is there's this incredible focus. And accuracy of technique mm-hmm. to create a product that looks very uh, whimsical and happenstance, like oh, it just happened. Oh, the the dye just happened to sweep across the fabric <laughs> <laughs> and make right. this fabulous thing. It wasn't like oh, yeah, that took five hundred and seventy-four hours of wrapping, you know, wow. to get that to get that yarn to you know that dye to sweep across the fabric. Mm -hmm. And you either are wired for the level, on the level that I do it, you're wired for it or you're not. Yeah. (laughs) My husband refers to it as a damaged chip. (laughs) 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 And he said, you know, he said, you got a damaged chip and everybody, anyone who works for you in your studio, you all have the same damaged chip that you can sit there and wrap yarn hour after hour, day after day. And we do. But it's and it's because not because we're so crazy about wrapping yarn, but we are completely nuts
0: about the results.
1: Yeah, it's so worth it. It's like dieting or something, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say that's exactly how a functional chip works. It does a whole bunch of tiny, little, minute calculations, and it persists. And you come up with something that you follow to its next, you know, yeah. conclusion.
1: I say that life life has compromises, and the only way I'm going the only way I'm going to get from A to the letter Q mm-hmm. is to do this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. And and I know how to do it. And I the formula works. And it's really fun.
0: It's interesting that you talk about how some of this came out of a portfolio review, because one of the decisions that artists often make is, to what extent do I want to be figurative versus more expressive, maybe, or abstract. And I feel like in ECOT, that almost comes into play more than some of the complex weave structures and things like that, you, you can decide, am I going to play with color and pattern? Am I going to try to make a figure, which is what a lot of the traditional ecot patterns do. So how did you match up your kind of artistic interests with what you wanted to make your textiles look like?
1: Okay, really, really good question. And this is what I always say to students. Not every idea was meant to be ecot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, first of all, it's there's this moment of discernment when you go, "Oh, this would be a real good double weave," or "Oh, this would make a great slip tapestry," or "This is just a bad idea in general," or "This is a perfect idea for an ecot." So it's understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of the technique mm-hmm. and what they will bring out. And I think for me, as I've, as I've worked over the years, I, I mean, I learned to weave just like everybody, you know, it's developmental. We all make the same stuff when we're starting out. And so, you know, I didn't jump from overshot to ecot overnight. My work started, my especially my, my carpets and tapestries, I started doing large, big color saturated blocks and, you know, always aiming for it is to make it more painterly, to make it more painterly, to make it more painterly. So um, I became pretty crazy about the juxtaposition of the feathered edge with a slit tapestry hard edge. So my work has has both qualities in it now. The the pieces that I'm doing these days are very I do a lot of hard edge color blocks hmm. with with ecot inserts and there's a really nice play of tension between the uh, you know the two edges. And I don't know if I've answered your question about how do you know um how to Apply Your Ideas. A few years ago, and I, I guess I, I can digress a bit with another story. Right when COVID hit and, you know, the world shut down, I all of a sudden I'm st- sitting in my studio, and I, I have at that time two studio assistants. And I'm like, I, I am determined to keep them employed. Yeah. But, you know, things had stopped flowing our way. And so I had been thinking for years about doing a really huge ECOT landscape. And what I wanted to capture was the sandhill crane oh. bird migration on the Platte River in February in Nebraska. We have a world class bird migration. The people come from all over the world to watch a million birds land on the Platte River and and they're there for quite a few weeks. And I found a bird's eye image of a long stretch of the river with the cranes roosting on it. Mm-hmm. And the minute I saw it, I was like, that's it. That's an ecot. And it's gonna be done and it's gonna be dyed all in indigo. It's gonna be all blue and white. It's going to be like 18 feet wide and 30 inches high. You know, it's going to be this huge wall of birds. Mm-hmm. Like you would put in a long hallway in a nature center or something like that. Sure. And so I, I did it. I got permission to use the photo. And we worked on that almost the first year of COVID in my studio. And it, it was just jillions of hours of wrapping. And it came out beautifully. And it's it's just blue and white. It's not it's not typical of my normal work. This was a moment when ECOT was the perfect solution mm-hmm. for telling a story. Yeah. And the the story looks very timeless. Wow. So that was that was that was exciting. And it's made me
0: want to do more. I want I want to embark on more of these big landscape things. Yep. And you said that you basically have sort of learned through trial and error how to go from, I'm just going to have a little dyed blip here to something where you can evoke, you know, a whole photograph or something like that. Right. And is that all just something you've done through trial and error?
1: Yeah, but I think also, I, I, and I, this is, goes back to one of your earlier questions about how do you see yourself as an artist. Right. I think I had so much really excellent you know art background i I, has, I had some some very um, amazing painting professors, and I was taught a lot. A lot of people poured a lot into me, and it came out in the name of textiles, you know, and so all of that has been pretty invaluable. Yeah. all that background and it's also gave me courage I, and I think that was another thing when I left college. There was not a doubt in my mind that I was an artist. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, was, I knew that. Somebody convinced me of that. Who, I don't know. <laughs> and there wasn't a doubt in my mind that, that this was a lifetime path, that, that I, you know, whatever making it is, mm-hmm. I don't know what that really, wor- that word is. I think part of making it is just loving what you do. Sure. And to and keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope but it was, I knew that it wasn't like a five-year gig. And then I was going to go and become a massage therapist or something, you know, that this was, this is who I was. Mm -hmm. And it's been a pretty great, pretty great journey. And I just keep always saying, oh, I feel like I'm, we're just getting down to it now. (laughs) I'm just getting started, Uh just getting started. Oh, I've got this idea. Oh, I'm just, I'm just at the beginning here. And I'm not at the beginning for Pete's sake, but it, I have the excitement of, of feeling that I'm just at the beginning. And that's a blessing sure. to, to be constantly fed and excited by making work.
0: And if you're, you know, inspired by new ideas and new scales of working, you know, you're constantly just at the beginning of whatever the next step is.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's always new levels of complexity. Mm-hmm. And I think I, li- I like that what if challenge. And I think, you know, somebody says, and I don't know who it was that said that so much of being an e cot weaver requires you to be an engineer. And I, and I would agree with that. And I think a lot, of, a lot of weavers are engineers as well. You know, we are always being asked to dip into that side of the brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it requires some skill sets that perhaps other art forms don't um, embody.
0: Yeah. Well, you're problem solving, whether it's a an engineering problem or an artistic problem. Certainly with textiles, you're thinking about things like tensile strength and twist and all those sorts of material science elements of it. But you're dealing with a set of problems and how successfully yeah. you solve them <laughs> determines how good as you are as an artist and an engineer.
1: And I think and you're building something. You're building a piece of cloth and you're literally building it thread by thread by mm-hmm. thread.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: And you're making something out of nothing. And that's pretty exciting Mm
0: -hmm. are you attracted by other elements of you know making cloth thread by thread or is it pretty much an artistic pursuit for you so for example do you say I'm just going to sit in front of the television and do some knitting or you know weave on a pin loom or is it sort of like this is your studio practice and and making textiles is is sort of your major outlet
1: right you know that's a that's another great question you have really good questions (laughs) And I will start by saying what I tell all of my classes. First thing, the first five minutes out of the hatch, I say, I am not a weaver's weaver. Mm -hmm. That's somebody else. And we all know who they are. We can run a list of those people that they, they know everything about weaving and they do it all the time. And I'm not that person. My bandwidth is very deep, but it's very narrow. It's not this long horizontal bandwidth where I have shadow weave at one end and crackle weave at the other <laughs> and ecots in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not me at all. Maybe I, I years ago, I did one project of all of those things, learning to weave. Do so I have a great love of cloth? Yes. And an appreciation for the making of that and all of those people who do it? You bet I do. And it was renewed, actually. This last fall, I taught the six-week textile concentration, fall textile concentration at Penland School of Craft mm-hmm. in Penland, North Carolina. And I taught a class called the ECOt Portfolio. And it was six weeks, day and night, six weeks. <laughs> and I had 12 students in the class. And in those six weeks, those 12 wonderful, talented students made me fall in love with cloth again and again and again and again. And they all came with different skill sets. Who knows who's going to be in your class? Mm-hmm. But the things they made, the cloth they produced was so exquisite and so uh, labored over and inspiring. And, it, you know, it, I came out of that experience knowing that I wanted, I would write another book on ecot going into directions that I hadn't gone in the first book, and really honoring and celebrating hand-woven cloth. I had a profoundly spiritual experience at Penland. That's wonderful. As, the, as an instructor, besides being exhausted, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of work. But it was a lot of fun. And it was a beautiful moment when I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I love cloth.
0: So you mentioned that your weaving interests are very you know, narrow and deep and ecot, but your first book was for a broad audience of weavers. Is that right? Yeah. How did you write your book knowing that people who might weave from it are, are folks who might practice a whole different kind of structure, et cetera?
1: Well, the point of the book was to teach a technique and mm-hmm. then encourage people to apply it to what already is their signature trademark style of weaving. And at that time, I I had several studio assistants that were fairly new weavers. And so they were perfect helpers on this because they didn't know much about using the technique in, in a warp application. So we were able to problem solve about all kinds of really basic things. And I knew that I had to make the teaching of the technique as broad a bandwidth as possible. That basically, this is you know, this is how it's been done in a lot of different countries. This is how you, that you basically do it. Now you go and apply it, and you get wild and crazy with it. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing for me on this book, the book came out. people started buying it and weaving off of it, and I am constantly getting emails from people with images of pieces that they have woven as a result of the book. And it's pretty exciting to see that, you know, it's working. It's like, yeah, they got it. They got it. And oh, my God, this person just wove 32 yards of ECOT fabric. And in fact, they're standing on, on the third floor of their house and it's rolled out the window and the bottom of the fabric is in their front yard, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean just all the different applications. And I realized that, it, you know, that's all everybody needed was just an angle in to a technique, so it didn't seem as incredibly intimidating. And like, oh, I can't do that. Of course you can. And you can't if somebody holds your hands and say, says, oh, just, you know, step one, you do this, step two, you do this. And so the book starts out very developmentally, very, very simple. And then, and then each project teaches one more skill set and one more skill set.
0: Because teaching someone to do the basic skills of ECOT is so different from working at a master level to create a, a yeah. piece of art. I think sometimes it can be challenging for people to sort of flick that switch. And especially if it's somebody who's not sitting in front of you, yeah. you anticipate their questions.
1: When, when Interweave Press asked me to do the book, they said, nothing's been written in ECOT forever. Would you consider doing a book? And they, they said, and it must be a technique book. I was always going to do a coffee table book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know about that. I said, I know it can't be totally weft-based. And I thought a while and I said, yes, I'll do it. So on a certain level, it brought me to my knees, but, you know, only briefly. Once I got going and at the end of the book, I I said, oh, now I know how to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because at the beginning, you don't, you know, like everything. You're just stumbling along, you know, in a cold sweat. So like, I don't know about this,
0: but it, it all worked out. So what's the next book that you're working on?
1: The next book is, a I would say, a companion to this book. And we're, we're going to go deeper, many different types of projects and building on skill sets. So, I mean, the first book is not a requirement to do things in the second book. Of course, I have to repeat some things. But I just want to take people to a deeper level and offer some tips on skill sets at at a deeper level. And also, there was a lot that I feel like that didn't get said in the first book. And after teaching off of the first book, I saw where there were certain holes in the teaching. Where I was like, okay, we should have added this, or I should have said it this way. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to say it this way in this book.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And also, it's just fun. I like to write. I'm very, you know, I'm just interested in producing. I don't know that there's going to be a shelf full of these books. (laughs) It might end with two, but I definitely um, am motivated to do this.
0: That's so exciting. I feel like there's a moment for ECOT, and maybe it's just that any time that you become personally interested in something, it feels like all of a sudden it's everywhere. everywhere. I feel that way. With with your books and then with this exhibit in Seattle, which is so exciting. It's got these huge cultural traditions and also contemporary art elements to it. And it just feels like an exciting time for Econ.
1: I agree. I agree. You know, and when when I started doing Econ, it wasn't even a household word among weavers, you know. And now it's such a dominant force in the home interior industry i mean ecot fabrics are you know they're coveted they're beautiful they're they're silk they're they're made in uzbekistan they're very expensive and they can't keep them in stock so it's it's having a moment for sure i think before this incarnation is over i do want to do a big uzbek inspired robe a big wearable Mm. piece
0: oh that'd be amazing
1: so that's that's on my to-do list but before that, this you know there will be lots of things for this book. Like among the projects in this book, we're going into a little bit. We're we're going to incorporate a bit of sewing and do some some pretty fun projects like ecot aprons. And I'm I'm a fan of aprons, so I want to do a whole series of ecot aprons.
0: You know the trouble with sewing with fabric is that it often involves cutting, and as difficult as it might be to. <laughs> Cut your regular hand woven fabric. I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to cut your <laughs> To cut your e cut.
1: <laughs> well then we have another project of what to what to do with those scraps. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you don't waste one inch of it.
0: <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You know it's interesting that you know, we talked about the word ikat and, and how it has a particular regional sense. And then, you know, you use the word shibori, and of course, that's Japanese. So do you think it's just that that's where it's most famous? Is it because. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that. I, I really do. I think the word, the word ikat comes from an Indonesian word, menjikat, M E N G I K A T. And the, the word is a noun and a verb. The verb means to tie or bind. And the noun means a, a wrap or a knot. So you put them together and you have the, the, you know, it completely describes the process. You're wrapping, I guess it doesn't have the word yarn in it, but you you know, you are, you are wrapping and creating a resist with a
0: knot. And then, you know, the word haspe is often just means like heathered, but that's a word I see in textiles a lot, even though it means a particular technique from a particular place that, you know, the right. Guatemalan Guatemalan ikat, Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You,
1: when yeah, you, you know, yeah. And Guatemalan textiles have such a distinctive look on um, that striping pattern, you know, that that holds through in all of their cloth. It's a very, it's very distinct and it is, it's parts of it are to have little bit of little teeny flecks that were achieved through ecot wrapping. You know, it's quite amazing. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, the, those textiles, often you'll, there'll be a warp and a weft, and it's like they just run roughshod over each other. It's like the warp right. and the weft aren't talking. They, they both yeah. have distinct patterns, but they don't relate to each other. <laughs> but then the Pachampali, I think that's how you pronounce it, the the saris in India, which are double ecot, and those create a distinct pattern where they overlap because it's almost more like a plaid where they're trying to get a square, for example, that it's trying to be something that where the warp and the weft interact
1: right this calculated ecot mm-hmm. which is called double ecot and the non calculated the random is called compound ecot technically if you were if you were going to compare the two and you know and both are pretty fabulous i mean quite a technical feat when the warp and weft combine and fill out a, a beautiful picture story but it's not a requirement
0: and then often at the very edges, you'll see the little bits where somebody just zhuzhed it just a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twisted up that's the tail g- and stuck it in the shed.
1: <laughs> that's a great description of what you do. And that's part of the fussing. So you fuss when you're wrapping the ecot, and then you fuss when you're weaving the ecot to get things to fit. And I teach all kinds of this, you know, a million and one tricks. And I always tell my, my weavers, I say, when you sit down at the loom to weave ecot. Everything your beginning weaving teacher taught you, you disregard (laughs) about bubbling and, you know, all we care about is getting the ECOT to fit and making it look fabulous. And we don't care how we get there, you know. (laughs) And so I teach them all kinds of ways to break the rules and make ECOT fit.
0: You're very goal oriented. (laughs) Yes, it is. The
1: the ECOT rules always.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) So this has been such an interesting deep dive into ECOT and a little bit of a shallow dive into your process. But if somebody was interested in learning more about how you do your work and about ECOT in general, how would they find those opportunities?
1: What I suggest is going to my website, uh, maryzikafoos.com. I keep an updated teaching calendar on my website. So you could contact any of the art centers or guilds to see if there are vacancies in those workshops. But even better, I would say, is that I, when I'm invited somewhere, I, I pretty much always say yes. If you invite <laughs> me, I I will come. I will come. I really <laughs> will. If there's an interest, I am there. And so if, you're, if your guild or your study group or your art center is interested in learning ECOt, just contact me. I, I teach over Zoom as well as in-person workshops. And they fill up. You know, it's, it's not... It's not that difficult to get me (laughs) in the guest bedroom at your house. I'll I'll be there in a minute.
0: (laughs) Well, in addition to finding classes on your website, you have some beautiful images of all of your different kinds of projects. So there's a bit of a, you can go and see what you've been working on as well as where they could find you.
1: Yeah. I try to keep my gallery updated. Um, And in terms of what's happening in the studio right now, I haven't really talked too much about my, my current work. I always have a running thank in blessedly and thank goodness I have a running list of commissions that I'm always chasing after. I'm I'm always behind, it seems. But I people contact me to commission work for their homes as well as for public buildings. And those are usually quite involved, really fun to do, quite time consuming, but delightful really. So we're we're working on a series of those as well as a year of projects for the new book. So and when I say we, right now, I have one studio assistant. His name is Peyton Pearson. He's been with me a a year and a half. And at Christmas, I lost my old longtime studio assistant, Anna Nance, who'd been with me for 14 years. Oh, wow. So that was like losing my daughter. She came to me right out of undergraduate school. She went to Savannah College of Art and Design and Textiles, stayed with me fourteen years and just had her first baby. So oh. she's home. She's home being a mama. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you lost her to another exciting yeah, a good project. <laughs> <cause>. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I absolutely. think
1: probably wrapping ECOT looks pretty easy compared to what she's doing now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Certainly yeah. a lot tidier. No dye pot <laughs> is
1: can keep up with the baby. <laughs> with, a, with a new baby. Oh, my goodness.
0: Well, Mary Zikafoos, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next.
1: Well, you know, thank you for having me. I, I love to talk to weavers. I love to talk about eCOP, but I think we all like to talk about ourselves and our work so this was (laughs) you know a a great opportunity for me to get all that off my chest so thank you so much
0: thanks to trainway silks for sponsoring this episode thank you for listening to the long thread podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please rate the show and leave us a comment on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform thanks again